When Jesus taught us who are in the kingdom, when he taught us how to pray, the first line of his prayer is, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. And I think for many of us, that's like throwaway. Yeah, that's, it could have just said, God, why would you specify that he art in heaven? And what does that mean? And where is that? So the topic of today is, where is heaven? Yuri Gregarian, the Russian cosmonaut, famously said while he was floating in orbit of the planet, I didn't see no God out here. Now he said that in Russian, so translate that into Russian. I didn't see any God out here. Now what's wrong with that statement of flying up in a, in a spaceship and being in orbit and saying, I didn't see any God out here? Would you expect to see a God out there somewhere in space? What about if you took a microscope and you looked down at the subatomic particles, all as far as we could see with an electron microscope? Would you find a God there? What if you took the newest replacement for the Hubble telescope and you looked into the vast reaches billions of light years from here? Would you see any God in your telescope? As Americans, we grow up in a worldview that says matter is the most real thing that exists. What is most real is this stuff. So if you can see it, if you can taste it, if you can touch it, if you can smell it, if you can hear it, if you can experience it with your senses, it's real. If it's not, it's not. So therefore, science becomes the source of ultimate knowledge. And knowledge, you want knowledge because you have to navigate your reality. Everyone wants to learn how to live the good life. I don't care what you believe, God or no God or ethics or Buddhism or atheism, everyone wants to live the good life. In order to live the good life, you need insight into how to navigate reality. That's called knowledge. And if you live by it, it's called wisdom. So I don't care what everyone believes, they are seeking wisdom. They're seeking insight. They want to understand how to navigate their reality so that they can have an optimum experience of this little brief thing we have called life on planet Earth in a body as a human. And Jesus claims to be the expert on knowledge and wisdom. He claims to be the smartest man who ever lived. He claims to understand where the universe came from and what life is and what it's for better than anyone else because he claims to be the Son of God. Colossians 1 says, all things were created through him and for him, and all things hold together in him, which is to say what Hebrews says, Hebrews 11, by the word of the Lord, everything visible was created. Therefore, Hebrews says, the visible, this, which we think is the most real thing that exists, this is dependent on the invisible. Now, what's most real about you? Is what's most real about you your physical person, your physical body? A lot of us would say yes. But what about who you really are? I mean, the real you. 
the personality, the memories, the uniqueness of who you are, which, by the way, I could not possibly use words to describe. I could use all my words for the rest of my life, and I would run out of words before I accurately captured the essence of my wife's spirit. But you could put her in a different body, and pretty quickly I'd know it's her, if I know her. Now, that's a weird thought, isn't it? Can you imagine how the angels felt when Jesus showed up? Whoa, what? Step back. Notice how the demons always recognize Jesus. What if he had looked different? What if he had different hair color? Would they have still recognized him? Remember how the disciples post-resurrection had trouble recognizing Jesus at first? But the point is, as soon as he what? Said their name. Mary. It's you. What's most real about you is actually immaterial. And what's most real about the entire universe is not the material, but the spiritual that the material is built on. So I've gone back to my original question. Where is heaven? Could you reach it in a spaceship? But a lot of us think that way, don't we? And so when we pray the first line of the Our Father who art in heaven, it sounds like here I am kneeling in my room and somewhere billions of miles away in a place I've never been is a father in heaven, wherever that is. It sounds like distancing language, doesn't it? God, if you're out there, I hope this email reaches you in time because I'm in trouble. And actually, Jesus is not saying, God, who's far away. Heaven is the realm of the Spirit where God dwells because God is Spirit. And the realm of the Spirit is the realm that sustains and upholds the realm of the physical. It is not possible to be in God's physical universe without heaven being present, surrounding, and sustaining you at every second. You could just as easily, instead of saying, Our Father who art in heaven, you could just as easily say, Our Father who surrounds us like the very air we breathe. Our Father who fills all things from the realm of the Spirit where you dwell and reign and rule over all things. It's not a statement saying God's somewhere out there, somewhere else. It's a statement of how present, how available, how near, how powerfully relevant to what I'm going through he is. This was not a great movie, but the last Star Wars movie has Rey fighting the bad guy and basically praying to all the uh, Jedi masters who've gone before, be with me. Be with me, because she needs their help. If I was Catholic, I'd be ampling that up for the pray to the saints thing. But since I'm not a Catholic, and I don't think praying to the saints is very helpful, since we can have Jesus himself instead of the saints. But anyway, that's a side point. I was thinking about Ray, just repeating, be with me, be with me. And I was like, oh my word. That's what Jesus is saying when he says, our Father who art in heaven. We don't have to ask him to be with us. He is with us. That's the point of in heaven. 
But we don't think that way, do we? We think we're stuck on planet Earth and the goal is to rise through the levels. Level three. Oh no, big boss battle. And eventually if you beat all the bad bosses and then all the regular bad guys, you can rise and get to heaven. You know who believed that in the ancient world? Gnostics. They taught the God of Jesus is spiritual and therefore flesh is sinful. A lot of us have read a certain translation of the Bible called the New International Version. And instead of rendering flesh as flesh, it tends to render it sinful nature. And it kind of seems to imply that my spirit is good, but my body is evil, which is not a biblical worldview, is it? No. The body has urges and desires that are natural, and if they're under the rulership of your spirit, they end up helpful. But if they're in charge and you do whatever you long for, instead of just eating when you're hungry, you'll eat too much. Instead of having sex with your spouse, you'll have sex with whoever you want. Instead of buying what you need, you'll waste all your money on whatever you want. The flesh is not evil. It's, never just, it's just never meant to be in charge. Where am I going? The realm of the spirit is close. And the realm of the, of the body, the realm of the, of the physical was meant, bless you, was always meant to be the place where the realm of the spirit is expressed. You were given a body on purpose because the goal is you in fellowship with God so that the will of God shows up and takes physical form on planet earth in a body. Because matter is good, not evil, and heaven's not someplace Jesus takes us after we die and throws the earth in a garbage can. But rather, the vision of the whole Bible is creation, then what? Fall, redemption, new creation. That is the story of human history, by the way. But the real truth is not going to be told on the news. Creation, fall, redemption, new creation. The goal, the goal is for the fellowship with God for which you were made. Heaven's available here and now. You can participate in the eternal spiritual reign of God so that it takes shape in your body on planet earth. All right, so after what I've just said, where's heaven, guys? Heaven is the realm of the spirit. God is a spirit. All right, I can't help myself. I'm going to have to go back to Wednesday's notes and read you Adam Clark's definition of who is God. God is the eternal, independent, self-existent being. The being whose purposes and actions spring from himself without foreign motive or influence. He who is absolute in dominion, the most pure, the most simple, the most spiritual of all essences, infinitely perfect, eternally self-sufficient, needing nothing he has made. Notice, all the gods of the ancient world, we, we were constantly putting food at their feet, at the feet of a statue we made. And through our offerings, the ancient people thought, we kept the universe going as though the gods needed emotional recharging or they would grow bored with us or displeased and we would stop existing. The spring would stop coming. The seasons would stop changing. We would stop being able to have babies. But the real God needs nothing 
needs nothing. We should not believe that the God who made heaven and earth dwells in temples made by hands or is served by anyone as though he needed anything, but rather he's the God who gives everything to everyone. And we shouldn't imagine that he's far away. For in him we live and move and have our being. Whether you like it or not, you're in the presence of God perpetually and there's nothing you can do to escape his presence. A lot of us struggle and strain to try to get God's presence. And what we really mean is a feeling. And it's more important to realize God's presence than it is to feel God's presence. Feelings come and go. It's, new, it's cool when they come. Eh, that's nice. But if you live by your feelings, you're, you're basically making a contract to stay spiritually immature and open for demonic manipulation the rest of your life. Adam Clark. Needing nothing that he has made, God is illimitable in his immensity, inconceivable in his mode of existence. What do you mean inconceivable in God's mode of existence? It means God is of a different kind, a different category, and there is nothing in the entire universe that fits into the category. This is why I talked about God's godness. There's nothing else that is even in the category. So when we try to think about God intelligently, which we have to, we have to use thoughts, we have to use words, but no matter what we say of God, it's just a sign pointing to a reality. Remember how I said I can't even describe my wife's spirit sufficiently with words. But God is not like that. He is of a different category of being that is indescribable. The best word that we have is holy because it's the only word that we know to use when something is so out of our box and we don't even have a grid for it that people tend in the presence of God to go silent, fall on their knees, begin to weep, and feel a sense of overwhelmed awe. William James called it the mysterium tremendum. Without even translating, you kind of get what he's saying. The tremendous mystery. It's so beyond that to be in the presence, first of all, to be in the presence of a, a massive, beautiful mountain causes me to have feelings of my smallness and its bigness, of its ancient power and beauty, and my fragile, finite, teensy, teensiness. I feel that way when I go to the ocean. And that's just a metaphor for God. It, it, it bothers me. How teddy bear, Santa Clausy, personal, my friend, we've shrunk God in our minds down to depend on him as though he's our little pop psychologist grandpa whose job is to forgive us and be nice. He's a man-sized Santa Claus on a throne somewhere behind Mars with hallmark fat baby naked angels floating around. I don't get it. It's, it, it's so trivializing and unreal. It's not real. It's not a God worth serving. It's definitely not a God worth sacrificing to or centering your whole life on. It's not a God that inspires awe and wonder. It's a fake made-up God. It's not the, to come into contact with the real Jesus, no lie. You're a little scared. Not because he's going to do you harm, but because he's of the kind of, the category of being is so beyond do you have a category for a God who knows every star, calls each star out by name, like Carolyn's shirt said on Wednesday? 
I don't have a category for a God who knows every grain of sand on the beaches, knows every star, knows every hair of my head, counts the, that it's that who effortlessly said, let there be, and the universe exploded into existence and developed according to his design. I, I, effortlessly. People's devil's too big. It's not a yin-yang kind of a thing. He's just a creature like us. A little more powerful, maybe a little more attractive, maybe a little better singer. But he's not the opposite of Jesus. There is no opposite of God. It doesn't exist. It's not a real thing. In fact, it's, I think, find it fascinating that in Paul's preaching of the gospel, he's more interested in sin and death being defeated through Jesus' resurrection and death than he isn't talking about the devil very often. I mean, he talks about the devil, but when sin and death are defeated, the devil just go along for the ride. His destiny is already settled. Israel asked me this week, did God create the hell for people or did he create it for Satan and his angels? Because I'm pretty sure he created it for Satan and his angels. I said, yes, that's Matthew 25, where Jesus in one of the parables says, uh, to those who, he, who did not know him in life, who did not walk with him in life, he says, depart from me, you evil doers, to the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels, but to the ones who walked with Jesus, he says, come, enter into your father's happiness. And he says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. Well, that's interesting. He prepared his kingdom for his children, but he prepared the lake of fire not for his children, but for the fallen, rebellious, demonic powers. So then Israel's like, was the question, how could a loving God send people to hell for eternity? If God is so loving, why would he send me to hell? And my response was, That's actually pretty much my answer. God loves you so much that he refuses to force you to be with him forever. He has so much respect for your freedom that he won't force you. Okay, let's back to this. God, needing nothing that he has made, illimitable in his immensity, inconceivable in his mode of existence, and indescribable in his essence, known fully only by himself because an infinite mind can only be fully comprehended by itself. In a word, a being who from his infinite wisdom cannot err or be deceived and from his infinite goodness can do nothing except what is eternally just and right and kind. If your kids asked you the question, who is God? And you're like me, you'd be like, oh, that's great. I have an answer to that. He's a loving father. And he keeps covenant. He keeps his promise. And he wants us to be his children. He wants us to fellowship with him. He looks just like Jesus. He's self-giving love. Jesus dying on a cross is what God looks like. And I would have a good answer to the question, who? Who is God? Which is the question of his personality and character. But his personality and character are different from asking the question, what is God? If I say, what are you? You're a human. You live in a body. You, you weigh between 100 and whatever pounds, most of you. You live about 65 to 85, 95 years, most of you. You move around from place to place, consuming items and then 
bloop, them into the uh, sewer system and drinking a lot of fluids and you move things around. You, you write things and you text things and you do things and then you die. And that's you. Amen. That's the kind of thing you are. Very small, very fragile, very temporary, very hi, bye, done. But the kind, that's not who you are, that's what you are. So trying to answer the question who God is is a lot easier for me than answering the question what God is. Because there's no other being like God in the entire universe. So here's how they try. Westminster Catechism from the 1600s, I think. God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, in glory, which is beauty, in happiness. Well, that's interesting. He's infinitely happy. So take something that you love about life that brings you joy. God experiences all the beauty, all the goodness, all the, all the savor of the goodness of stuff he's made in the entire universe. Billions of worlds like this one are more beautiful. And he has total enjoyment of all the good things he has made forever. And creation was not God who was lonely and alone saying, I need friends. It was the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit having so much extra joy that they said, we must share this thing called life with children. Let's make them in our own image. Hey, first, let's create a universe for them to live in. And you go, what in the world? That's such a human-centered worldview. We're just an irrelevant speck, third rock from a sun. That's an irrelevant sun in an irrelevant solar system and an irrelevant, irrelevant Milky Way, which is in the corner of nowhere, going nowhere, which goes back to the basic worldview again. What is the basic worldview you believe? Is matter the most real? And do the scientists have the right to tell you the meaning of all life? Or is that not their job? Since we already said in the beginning, you're not going to find God in a telescope or a microscope or through any other means of measuring the matter. And you shouldn't expect to find God there either since he is spirit. He's more like a mind than anything else. But do we see the evidence for the mind? Yes. So the dominant theory of how things got here is evolution, and the whole point of evolution is to try to deal with apparent design. Are you with me? The entire theory is, wow, this looks so intentionally made. How can we say it's not? That's the whole theory. Apparent design explained. Oh, man, I'm so, like, on a, on a tangent today. God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, perfection, all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and in truth. He's of a kind of being where he's the only kind of being like him. Are we, getting, are we getting closer when we say, our Father who art in heaven? Do we have a little bit different picture now? What is God? An incomprehensibly powerful ancient being that everything else is dependent upon, and he is dependent on nothing. 
who has chosen to create this whole universe in which we live and who fills it, every square inch of it, every particle of it, knows it infinitely and is bringing it to his ultimate purposes in Jesus. He won't lose, he can't lose, and he won't lose track of you. I'm going to shut this down now. I'm going to leave you with one small story that Jesus told. It's really not a story. It's more of a response. There were religious people in Jesus' days called the Sadducees. And the Sadducees was one little school of theological belief. And the Pharisees were a different school of belief. The Pharisees were actually more close to the truth. They believed in angels and spirits and resurrection and life after death. The Sadducees believed that God had revealed himself to Moses in history. You can feel it, you can touch it, you can taste it, you can eat it, you can pass it through your lower intestine, you can process it with a scientific worldview. The Sadducees were religious, scientific kind of a people. I don't see no spirits, so there must not be spirits. I don't see no angels, so there must not be no angels. I ain't never seen anyone raised from the dead, so there must not be resurrections from the dead. And they come, they try to trap Jesus. You remember the story? People don't just say, I think you're bad and evil, and I think you're stupid. Instead, they act like they're nice. Hey, you're such a great guy. You have so much intelligence. Can you answer me a question? And it's a trap. Ew, gross. And they say, there's a woman, and she married. Her husband died. She remarried, married again, and so on and so forth. In the resurrection, which they don't believe in, whose, whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus says, you're wrong. I love it. I love how straightforward he is. He looks him in the eyes and says, you're wrong. Because you don't know the Bible and you don't know God's power. In the resurrection, you're not going to be marrying or given in marriage. Marriage is a temporary arrangement. But you'll be like the angels in heaven. And then he quotes this Old Testament passage, and it seems so simple. It's like, how could you get there? He says, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God's not the God of the dead, but the living. Apparently, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are so precious to God. He loves them so much. He delights in them so much that he refuses to be without them. And so he's made a way beyond the grave for the ones he loves, that, that he treasures, that are his friends, that are his children, that have said their yeses to him in life, to be with him forever. And Jesus knows this and just says it's practical, plain fact. God's not the God of the dead, but the living. You're wrong. Now, I just, I just wonder if we can catch a bigger vision of God in his own nature. Not a God we invented. Not a God, not a God we made up. Not a God that fits in our mind. But the God that we have to do with. If that might change some things, what if this universe is actually a safe place for us to be? What if this is actually a safe place for us? And what if, what if our Father, what if He's of such size and scope and power and He's so close and so cares for me that, it, that Jesus is actually right? Consider the fields and how God takes the time to make them beautiful, more beautiful than Solomon's 
fine clothing? And what if he's going to care for you and provide clothing for you, you who fear and fret and worry and strive and struggle? And consider the birds of the air. God knows every single one of them by name. They're not throwaway. We think of them as throwaway. I had an uncle, and if he wasn't the wrong kind of bird, he'd snap his little neck. Oh, it's a starling? Oh, it's a sparrow? But if it's a bluebird, give it a house. It's own special little house with paint and a little perch. And Jesus, I'm thinking of Jesus going, I'm looking, thinking of my uncle and going, do you remember when Jesus said that not one sparrow will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father because he actually loves all the animals? I'm that ADHD that I'm like, no, I want to tell the story about my aunt pretending to serve possum to the family. Yeah. Betty, what is this? Oh, I just found it on the road. What do you mean you found it on the road? Children, back away from your plates. You do not have to eat this. What kind of animal was this, Betty? Oh, I don't know. Did it have a pink, long, hairless tail? You know, I think it might have. Oh, children, push your plates further away. This is Betty. Oh, <laughs> Harold, you're crazy. This is just roast. I pulled you, you know, just, she's, she's nuts. Okay. <laughs> what if God is not far? What if we're not calling him on a, on a long distance line? God, in heaven, help, I need you somewhere out there. What if he's so present that we've learned not to recognize him? Like fish are wet. They're constantly wet. But if you try to explain the idea of water to a fish, it's the only environment they've ever known. They know nothing but water. Trying to explain the idea of wet to a fish is not going to work. Well, because they're dumb. But if they weren't dumb. Okay, a dolphin. There we go. Something intelligent. And trying to explain the glory and presence of God to a human, we think it's not here because we're so swimming in it. And it's our native land. It is our environment. When the veil's pulled back and Isaiah in chapter 6 sees a vision of, of Jesus in his glory, it's holy, holy, holy. And then what? The whole earth is full of your glory. It's a seeing glory clearly so that the mundane is revealed for what it is, filled with God. You don't have to be Ray praying, be with me. You can remember he's with you and learn how to cooperate with the one whose kingdom is at hand.